welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. I'm excited to let everyone know about the Doing the Work collection in partnership with Things Social Workers Say. We've got hoodies, tees, mugs, and tote bags. Now you can rep the podcast you love while you're doing the work. Check out the link in the show notes and head on over to the store. Thanks for supporting this work. In this episode, I talk with Kristen Brock Petrosius, who is a PhD candidate in social welfare at UCLA and a community organizer with White People for Black Lives in Los Angeles, California. We discuss Kristen's experiences as a white person doing racial justice organizing with white people as part of showing up for racial justice, surge, and deep canvassing as a strategy to engage people who may not be in support of a particular issue. Kristen shares how she got into racial justice organizing and her evolution from an ally approach to one that recognizes that racism and white supremacy deeply harm everyone, differently of course and the importance of organizing with white people to talk with other white people and do this work in white communities as a way to build political power that can pass much-needed legislation as part of larger racial justice movements and platforms. She details how deep canvassing was used on the Reform LA Jails campaign in LA, led by Patrice Cullors, and provides examples of what a deep canvassing conversation looks like. We also get into the origins of deep canvassing, which came out of the same-sex marriage and transgender justice movements. Kristen talks about when deep canvassing can be utilized and when other approaches are needed. She explains how and why she entered academia in order to research effective social justice strategies and where things may be headed with deep canvassing. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode's sponsor, the University of Tennessee Knoxville College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UTK has a phenomenal social work program with the opportunity to do your bachelor's, master's, and doctorate of social work online. Of course, they also have excellent classes in person in both Knoxville and Nashville. UTK is committed to preparing social workers who will support human potential and dignity and challenge racism and all forms of oppression scholarships are available. Go to www.csw.utk.edu to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey, Kristen, thanks for coming on, doing the work. I am so excited to have this time to talk with you about your racial justice organizing and especially talking about deep canvassing. And we connected right on Twitter because I put out a tweet um, some time back saying like, you know, for real, like how do we talk to white people about racism? Mm-hmm. And you responded and were like, I have a way, <laughs> like I have some ideas on how to do that. And that's what my research is all about. So, you know, we're going to get into all that, but if you could talk, you know, to start us off just a little bit about like your racial justice organizing background and how you got into it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And it's, it's, I'll say too, it's, it's an awkward thing to be a white person talking about racial justice organizing focused on white people. It's, it's awkward because we're um, very used to the importance of centering the work of uh, black, indigenous, and brown folks. Um, and we know strategically we need to work to end racism in white communities. So I'll just name that it's like, it's awkward and a conversation we need to have. And, um, but it's always in the context of one part of like a broader piece of work that needs to happen as part of multiracial movements. Um, so I, when I was in my early twenties, um, I, you know, I think like many, uh, you know, probably well-meaning white women, social workers in particular, I approached social change work from like a, a pretty paternalistic kind of service oriented mindset. I was raised really Catholic, grew up going, my dad would take me to like soup kitchens. I did a lot of service, uh, service work when I was in high school. Um, and when I was in my early twenties, I started to get more involved in, um, activist work at the university I was at in Wisconsin. 
And uh, through that, I ended up being part of this program in the Bay Area. And I ended up at this poetry event uh, led by a women of color anti-violence organization. And there was a black woman poet um, speaking this great piece. And part of it, there was a moment when she said something, speaking to white people in particular, where she said, um, if you want to help, don't come into my community, meaning black communities or black neighborhoods, go work with your own people. And I remember I went um, that night, like I was sleeping and it like unnerved me in a really uh, great, uncomfortable way. I never heard that before. I never heard anyone say white people go work with white people. Mm. And I remember my subconscious kind of processing that while I was sleeping uh, that night and just really questioning, like, what does that mean? What do I do with that? And I happened to be staying with some folks who were involved in uh, this like white anti-racist organizing project called the Challenging White Supremacy Workshop. And they were, um, I remember like having coffee that morning (laughs) and just like talking, asking questions. I was very naive and, you know, very fresh to even the concept of thinking about racism and myself as a white person in all honesty. And they listened and they asked me good questions and they suggested things that I read and ways that I might think about the questions I had. And that was the beginning of, um, of getting me involved really from there. I, uh, you know, started like a dialogue group um, and then very quickly realized that there needs to be an an action component. Um, So in about like 2005, I was part of a group um, that created a white anti-racist organizing collective in Wisconsin. We were one of about a dozen groups like that across the country at the time. One of the groups was a group I organize with now, LA Aware, um, who was around way back then too. Um, so I got involved in that group. A lot of our work focused on supporting organizing by folks of color. Um, so we would bring out white people to support um, undocumented migrant organizing in Wisconsin for uh, in-state tuition. Um, we would turn out people to support fundraisers. Um, over time, we got uh, involved in the group that did a lot of, a lot of the Black Lives Matter organizing uh, in Wisconsin. And, and other things, but really our framework at the time was the traditional ally model, that our work as a white person was to show up for folks of color. Um, and I had one specific experience where I was involved in organizing uh, mostly houseless folks, mostly black folks who were in a park um, and they were being constantly policed and put in and out of jail um, just for sleeping in a park. And we organized with that group over five years, and it became apparent that no matter how much power we built with that community, um, with broader communities of color in that city, how, it didn't matter how many people we turned out to city council meetings. In the end, like the elected officials, when it came down to allocating resources or making policy decisions time and again, they sided with the interests of white property people. And so it really brings home to me this piece of to actually like advance racial justice wins. We need to build power in black and brown communities and we need to uh, both work to end racism in white communities, but even more concretely to build support for racial justice at the policy level um, in majority white communities. And so that's what kind of put me um, on a very focused path in figuring out what does it mean to build a base in majority white neighborhoods? What does it mean to to talk with people we don't know, um, to kind of go beyond the the activists or the liberal white people and challenge people in ways that can really move the political needle um, in white communities in a way that that can scale. So before going, you know, deeper into like deep canvassing and in the campaign in LA, you were a part of and, you know, some of the actual steps of deep canvassing, I wanted to talk about something you you just said because so you're doing all this organizing work and you realize that the policymakers are still siding with white property owners, right? Was that just something that was so glaringly obvious to you at the time? Or was that like conversations you were having that was like when you started really noticing that that's what was happening? Do you know what I mean? Because like there could have been an approach where it's like, okay, we're going to mobilize and we're going to try to get um, black and brown people as elect in those elected official positions or right. Cause that that's part of the approach too. But what, 
how did that like happen for you? You know, when that with that campaign that you were a part of at that time? I mean, um, this was in Wisconsin as well. So Wisconsin is like, there are people of color in Wisconsin to, to spell the, the myth that it's an all white <laughs> state, but it's like, you know, it's like 80, 85% white. Um, but even, you know, Madison, where I was living and the city council who made a lot of these decisions, even folks of color who were on the city council often voted against the policies we were trying to get passed. And it, I mean, honestly, it's like you see it play out all the time in places like LA, where it's like really, you know, in some ways, it, the ideology of, just wanting to remove folks who are homeless um, and not see them, view them as problems and not actually provide resources. It's like a pervasive liberal <laughs> framework. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it I, I guess it never really occurred to me that it was a piece of, well, if we had more folks of color on city council, this would be different because the folks of color who were on city council voted the same way. And it would be like, we'd have literally like a hundred people who would speak testimony over four hours and then two white people would show up who are part of the homeowners association in opposition to the thing we were trying to pass. And then every single city council member would vote with um, the opposite position, the one of the homeowners associations. I mean, I think it's such an important point that it comes down so often all the time, right? And in, in terms of political power and it sounds like from what you're saying is no matter how many people you had turn up, the political power resided in white property owners. And that was predominantly this larger voter block, right? That the city council members are going to ultimately side with because that is like probably who's funding their campaigns, who's keeping them in office, who's voting them into office, all of that. So after that, what happened, you know, next for you in this transition and, you know, this work? Yeah. I mean, there are many small moments in between. But for me, kind of the next pivotal moment is when, um, so I was staff with Surge for a while. Um, and kind of from that position of being in a, you know, more like professional organizing role, I just realized that, you know, organizers always do the really essential work of responding in the moment to the most pressing need at a time. Um, and especially in that context, it was, um, it was the summer that, um, Philando Castile and several other people were killed by the police. Um, and it was an, it was another uprising period. And so we constantly were in, uh, in rapid response mode. And so that work is really important. And over time, you know, at that point I had been involved in this kind of work for about a decade and I just realized there was this question, um, that we didn't have an answer to, right? This question put out um, a generation before by folks like um, Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael of, well, if white people are serious about ending white supremacy, then go uh, go work with white people, right? And even um, on your podcast recently, it was very interesting to me that um, founder Jaggers names that same piece that that was a call he put out to NCSW or that the NABSW put out to NCSW, that it was you know, their role as like the mainstream, mostly white social work organization to go deal with white racism. So it's this call that's been put out, you know, a generation before. And um, that same kind of call and question gets being asked, it keeps repeating being asked over and over again. How do we change uh, racism in white communities? And not just at the individual level, but at a way that can actually impact uh, policy and broader cultural transformation. And so I started to realize, you know, after just a period of constantly being in rapid response mode that I just didn't, I felt this hunger to actually figure out what kinds of strategies could help move forward shifts in white communities towards uh, racial justice. And I didn't know what that looked like, but I started to feel hungry about finding a space to do that. And over time, I realized that like a research angle actually could provide that space. You have a different orientation to time. You might examine one thing over several years instead of focusing on one issue for a few months and then jumping to the next issue. Um, And that you can really focus on inquiry and strategy over over years. So that's when I decided um, to go to grad school. Um, at UCLA, I came in through the joint MSW PhD program. Um, so I always joke, I'm like, I was doing social work before I had the professional credential, which I know totally. is a contentious thing to say. But I'm like, I was literally, I worked, I did the same work as many social workers and always organized um, in a volunteer capacity because I think that's part of how, well, part of how, but might be the most critical way of how social change happens is what we do in our non-professional capacities. Absolutely. 
And when I was working for Surge is when I got to learn about deep canvassing. And the more I understood it, that it was a way to um, build leadership of uh, majority white people to go talk with majority white people at their doors and have vulnerable, honest uh, conversations that could be transformative, both for the canvasser and for the the stranger um, and to shift how people would vote on policy. It just felt a little bit like uh, this magic sauce of a specific strategy we could um, we could try out to address this call of white people organizing in in white communities. So let's then jump right into deep canvassing, you know, um, and we can kind of get into like specific campaigns and some other underlying um, like approaches of like what's kind of within deep canvassing. But just if you could kind of, you know, go over the main orientation and then we can even get in the steps because I know before you and I have talked about um, and you sent me like some examples even of like, so people listening could maybe listen to this and it doesn't mean like they've gotten like the deep canvassing training or something like that, but it gives them enough that it's like, oh, like that might be something I want to do and I'm going to seek that out and they can find out where to seek out more and get trained and get doing this work. Mm hmm. Yeah. So for anyone who's done canvassing, like traditional political canvassing involves knocking on a door and telling someone information about an issue. And the conversation lasts about five minutes. Um, And most of that kind of canvassing, it really focuses on trying to target people who are likely supporters. Deep canvassing is different. In deep canvassing, the focus is not about sharing information. It's about sharing personal stories related to the issue that's being discussed at a political level, um, getting vulnerable, and focusing on people who don't already agree with us, right? Um, So, and I think this would be like the majority, if you think about uh, an issue like abolitionist policies, this is going to be the majority of people across the board, but especially the majority of white people who aren't uh, fully fully supportive of abolitionist policies. Um, so a deep canvassing conversation takes on average about 20 minutes. And it goes something like this. So the canvasser knocks on the door, they introduce themselves, they say, I'm a volunteer with Surge here to talk with you about an issue um, on uh, the ballot coming up. Um, for us, we did our deep canvas organizing in the context of the Measure R or Reform LA Jails campaign that happened uh, late 2019 into 2020. Um, and that was a decarceration policy. Um, the vision for that came from Patrice Kahn Kohlers, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter and a coalition of groups. Um, and our role, you know, we really kind of came to the table as part of this broader movement ecosystem and said, you know, we have a vision for how we could play a role in targeting majority white communities in um, so in backing Measure R. Um, and I think that's an important point, too, because sometimes I think I know some of my early uh training or modeling for what it meant to be a white person doing racial justice work was to wait for folks of color to tell me what to do. Um, and this was a moment where, you know, we we said, hmm, let's think about it. What could we do as white people to try to get white support for this issue? And we actually came up with a proposal. We talked with Patrice about it and other folks in um, our, our movement context here. And uh, they agreed that it was a, a sound strategy. Um, so over those six months, we mobilized over 600 people. We had over 2,000 deep canvas conversations. um, And the measure won uh, by a landslide in March 2020, just before uh, COVID stay-at-home orders started. Um, So it was a big win for us. Um, So what the policy won was a reallocation of funds from jail expansion into community resources. It also set the the path forward for Measure J, which is another ballot initiative uh, that won by a landslide in November that really came about um, as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement this past summer. Um, and that measure reallocated 10% from uh, the sheriff's budget into community resources, um, an even bigger move than what happened with, with Measure R. So it really is seeing, you know, kind of the concept of abolition uh, starting to take place through policy. Yeah. So would that be safe to say that's when people are talking like defund the police, those would be some of the steps towards that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a case to go even farther. <laughs> right, right. Of course. And, uh, and it's a move in the right direction, right? It's like abolitionist exactly. policies are those that start to chip away at the power or resources that the carceral state has. Yeah. 
And the tactic that your group, Surge, used as part of that campaign was deep canvassing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was, um, so this was in collaboration with Surge National, but also I need to make sure to name White People for Black Lives, the Surge affiliate here in LA. That was the primary group doing the organizing. Um, and so the this is the model we use. So a canvasser knocks on somebody's door. Um, I would introduce myself, explain that I'm a volunteer with Surge, and I'm here to talk about a policy they're going to be voting on soon related to the county jail system. Um, and I would describe the policy. I'd say the policy seeks to reallocate funds from jail expansion into community resources. Um, there also is a second part of the policy about uh, increasing accountability for abuses that happen within the sheriff's department. So we'd explain the policy and then we would just ask the person on a scale from zero to 10, where zero is you're 100% against the policy, 10 is 100% you're in favor, where would you place yourself? Um, and so the person would say a number, then a lot of the practice is just asking questions to try to get them to respond honestly, very similar to how a therapist does, right? You're building rapport, you're talking non-judgmentally. Um, so why, why is five the right number for you? What's on either side for you? What are some things that might move you towards being more in support? What are some reasons that might move you towards being opposed? Um, and the goal there is we really want to hear whatever is going on within them psychologically that might move them to be opposed to the policy. We want to know that. Um, and I think this is contrary to a lot of our um kind of political teaching sometimes that we don't want somebody to say the problematic thing. Um, and if they do, we're going to like have a great response right away. Instead, it's about like, we want you to be honest, because whatever your holdup is, it's there whether or not you tell us. But if you don't tell us, we can't do anything to work on that issue with you, right? So here at the beginning of the conversation, we want the person to be honest, and we're, um, we're just listening and taking note of the things they're saying, but we're not responding to it then, right? Um, also very similar to like a therapeutic technique. So after we've done that, we just have a sense of what they're thinking about the issue. Um, then we start to talk about stories. Um, so we would ask them, do you know anyone who has been um, arrested or in jail? Um, sometimes they would say yes. Um, oftentimes when talking with folks in majority white communities, they're actually not targeted by policing or carceral systems. So a lot of times people would say, no, I don't know anybody. Um, and then we would ask like a bridge question where we'd say, you know, a lot of times uh, people in jail struggle with mental health or addiction issues. Do you know anyone who has struggled with mental health or addiction issues? And there almost everybody can think of somebody they know themselves or a loved one. Um, so the idea is to have them think about a specific person. And from there, we ask questions to dig deeper. Who is that person? Um, what, what happened? How did that affect them? What was that like for you? Uh, to see them struggle, to see them treated that way. Um, and the goal is to get to um, a, like a vulnerable place and a place where emotion is activated so people aren't just thinking about the issue from like an ideological uh, lens. Uh, and then I would talk about someone close in my life who had been to jail and how that affected his family and how he and his children now, even though it's been 10 years later, um, they're basically homeless going from couch to couch because he's had a hard time keeping a job because of his record, right? Um, so it's making it personal, talking about people. That's the first layer of the story. The second layer of the story was to get even more vulnerable and talk about a time uh, you or someone you loved was hurt in a really bad way. Um, so I, you know, I would, I, over time, I learned to have different stories I would share in different contexts. Um, but sometimes I would talk about growing up in an abusive family and how people, you know, people were aware it was happening, but generally people just ignored it. Um, because of, I think, in a lot of ways, this idea of families are these individualistic units and we just mind our own business. And I was, you know, I had a white family. And so you just kind of assume they're fine. Um, nothing, nothing horrible is going on. And, um, and it was deeply harmful and nobody intervened. Systems failed me in that context, for example. So I would talk about that. Um, or I would talk about a friend who was assaulted and the response to that, like what that did for her. Um, and the fact that we didn't have any good, re any good response to help make sure that the person who assaulted her never did it again. Right. So I would share there. And then from that very, I mean, this is talking about hard stuff, <laughs> like very mm -hmm. hard, vulnerable things with a stranger at the door. Um, and so then I would ask that person, um, have you had an experience like that where you or someone you love was hurt really bad and, and you didn't know what to do with it? You were really kind of 
just taken aback. Um, and even, you know, as I'm talking, you probably kind of feel, you can feel something in the way it's not this intellectual speak. It's just like being in the emotion of it and having pause and giving people space to like connect to the feeling. Um, so that I think that moment of the conversation is where the deep work would happen. Um, I had a couple examples come to mind at that part of the story that were uh, deeply impactful. Um, one was with an older man who talked about uh, walking through his neighborhood the year before and someone um, at a bus stop who he thought he had kind of befriended. It seemed like the person had been sleeping at the bus stop quite a bit. Um, he uh, attacked him one day and this older man was like physically assaulted and had to go to the hospital. And um, in talking about how that experience impacted him, he really wrestled with how he didn't feel safe anymore walking was kind of like the one thing he had each day to feel like he had some freedom because uh, otherwise he was in his house by himself a lot. Um, and uh, I started to ask questions about what he needed to feel safe again, what he needed to heal, what he thinks the other person who attacked him would need to never do that again. Um, and very clearly, you know, kind of landed on the fact that, you know, in that situation, he did call the police. The police didn't do anything. Um, the police were not concerned with his safety or well-being or healing process. Um, that was something he did through a network of friends and family who started to walk with him till he felt safe and confident doing it again. Um, and he was clear, you know, he's like really the person probably what they needed was housing and mental health support and people who were like responsible for looking out for him mm. um, to make sure he was okay. And the fact that he was just like left to his by himself, <laughs> you know, with whatever um, kind of mental health struggles he had going on is what set up the context for him to be violent. Um, so that's an example of the kind of conversation we're having. And then at the end, uh, we come back to the issue. So then I'd say, you know, again, I'm out here to talk about reform LA jails. Here again is what the policy will do. And then I'll say earlier, you said, and now I'll name the thing they named at the beginning of the conversation, the reason that they weren't sure they were going to support the policy. So they might have said, um, well, I'm just not really sure, like, if the funding will go into resources that are actually going to help. So I'd say, you know, earlier you said you, you weren't sure about the funding, if it was actually going to help. What do you think now? Um, and so even that frame, what do you think now or where are you at now, puts it back on the other person after they've been activated emotionally in a vulnerable way about their real lived experiences um, to reconsider the policy. And most often people who actually changed and not everybody changes, but of the people who changed most often at that moment, you knew because they talked themselves out of the reason they gave at the beginning for not being fully in support of the policy. Um, so they talk about it. That's also a moment. That is a moment where we, the canvasser can persuade a little bit. Um, so we could say, well, I hear you. I might give an explanation. I might give a statistic <laughs> at that moment and say, and I'm fully in support of this policy and here's why. And then the conversation ends just with another scale, like, so scale of zero to 10, where are you at now? Um, if they changed, why did you change? Um, and that's it in a nutshell. And so, you know, deep canvassing, it's it's very impactful um, in reality, you know, at the doors right in that moment, beginning to end of conversation, we found about 30 percent of people said that they moved, that they increased their support for the abolitionist policy. Um, you know, if you look at studies of deep canvassing that have looked at, OK, when they're not if they're when they're not telling directly to the canvasser where they're at. Um, and if you're looking out over time, two months later, three months later, four months later, does the change that happened in a deep canvassing conversation stick? Um, the percent that change, it probably ends up being something closer to like 10 or 15%. Um, so if you think of 10 to 15% of white people or people who live in majority white neighborhoods, however you want to frame it, 10 to 15%, it's not a majority. It's not a huge number, but it's enough to shift elections, right? Um, and that also feels practical because it's not, I think sometimes we want to think that there's, you know, uh, a magic cure or like an antidote to racism. And we know this stuff is like deeply entrenched. <laughs> like it's not easy. Um, so I think it's a, it's a very practical, like this is a useful tool. It's not the only useful tool. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for enough people that I think it's a really important organizing strategy to, uh, to use more widely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it just sounds really powerful. Um, and if it works, then it's absolutely something that should be used, right? And 
I, I have a, I have a couple of questions about it. You know, based on what you're saying, I think the first one is like I was talking about it um, back when you and I first connected. I was talking about it with a friend of mine who is Latina, identifies as brown, and she was just like, I- "I'm not doing that." You know, like I can't listen to that. That's just too painful. Like I already deal with this every day. So it's definitely a choice of like who, and that's why, as you're saying, it's a thing for like white, that white people can do, you know, with other white people. But you also, it sounds like you really have to be able to listen to all that. You have to be Mm -hmm. in a place where you can hear, right? The person saying things that like might really bring up a lot of emotion for you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely some people, you know, it's not, it's going to be a little bit too much. Um, There's also a piece of, you know, some people I think have a, you know, background or skill set that sets them up to be like really good at this. So social workers and mental health folks in general are like really good at deep canvassing because they know how to hold this kind of space. Um, Women and femme people are very used to holding emotional space for other people. And, you know, a lot of queer and trans people have, are just used to being in relationships with family or loved ones where sometimes they say really painful things. Um, so some people, mm. you know, some of us have have skills or experiences that actually make us better at deep canvassing. Um, and it's not for everyone. And the other thing I'll say is, I think in our specific organizing context and strategy, you know, our focus was white people organizing white people. But deep canvassing is a tool that can be used more widely. Um, so I, one of the folks who organized with us as part of the LA Teachers Union, and there was a, gr- a multiracial group of folks um, working on deep canvassing related to an effort to get police out of schools. Um, and I don't want to, I'm like conscious not to like overshare internal organizing dynamics too much, but I will say that there were many um, folks of color who started the conversation from a place of I don't have I don't have space to have these kinds of conversations with people, even members of my own community who aren't in support of abolition. I don't have the emotional space to go there with them. And then actually experiencing a bit of what a deep canvassing conversation could be. Many people, um, they moved. They they were moved by seeing it in uh, in process and were moved from their place of like, I, I can't do that. That's too much pain. I don't have space for it. Many people... Um, they actually ended up doing the organizing with their own mm. communities and found it to be very transformational. Did I mean, didn't it start with queer organizers, like trans organizers talking, you know, with people about like some anti-trans legislation, right? I mean, isn't that how it started? Yeah, so it was it was developed by folks from the Leadership Lab, which is with the Los Angeles LGBT Center. Um, and the first models were actually built um, in response to Prop 8 in California. So it was actually about same-sex marriage. It was a group of people who said, oh my gosh, I can't believe we lost. And they decided to go talk with people who voted um, against them. And it started from a place of just listening to what people were saying and having painful conversations. And this was mostly queer people going out having conversations with non-queer people. Um, and they just like heard them. And over time, they just tr- they tested things out um, and f- and found out this um, this model of deep canvassing seemed really effective. Um, so it was first used around different battles um, to pass same-sex marriage across the country. And then another version uh, was developed around increasing support for trans non-discrimination policy. Um, and that's the context it's been mostly uh, researched in. It was actually in Miami-Dade County um, where they did the study some years back trying to decrease transphobia and increase support for trans non-discrimination policy. It also more recently in 2020, um, there was a, a couple experiments uh, published that also looked at increasing support for pro-immigrant uh, policies and decreasing uh, xenophobia um, and found it to be effective in that context as well. I mean, it's amazing. And it's something that should be taught in social work education for one thing. So that I'm so glad, you know, again, that you're on here because I know people will listen and and access this through this through this medium too. The other thing I wanted to ask you, right, is like you're going you said it, like you're going and you're talking to strangers, right? How many, you know, people say like I'm not interested in any conversation? How many people stick with the conversation? 
at some point like during the conversation or people like like i'm done like this is over you know mm. I'm, it's just an interesting thing also that uh, someone would engage with someone coming up to them like to their home for 20 minutes versus just like a few minutes or something you know mm-hmm. everyone's busy and and you know and to have this deep engaging conversation seems like this really amazing thing actually to mm-hmm. like for both people to stick with it for that long. So I wanted to Mm -hmm. ask you about that. Yeah, it's a great question. So it's true. Most people do not answer their doors (laughs) (laughs) straight up. So we, that's part of, there's a lot of training that goes into like how you prepare Z canvassers to do those. So that's part of it is most people are not going to answer their doors. Uh, Maybe like, I'd say maybe 60%, nobody's home. Um, And then when you do knock on doors, um, you know, some people will just immediately, they won't even hear what you're there for. They'll just say, no, thank you. Or I don't want to talk to anybody. Uh, But maybe, you know, you might end up with like 25% of the people you door knocked answer the door who, um, who actually stick with the conversation. And usually we'd find that once you started to ask somebody what they thought, where are you at on this policy? Why are you thinking about that? They started to realize, oh, this person isn't here to tell me things. They're here to listen what I to what I think. And so that usually was enough of a hook. If the person was interested in a conversation, they would continue on or not then. Um, but you you would know pretty early on. Yeah, I mean, I guess also like not a lot of people just have people who give them full attention and listen to them, right? Yeah. And that's something I think those of us who have ever worked in a therapy role really see, you know, or just even like supportive counseling or, I mean, it doesn't, Mm -hmm. you don't have to be a therapist. Like I did before I was a social worker, right? Mm -hmm. I did street outreach with youth experiencing homelessness and like they were not used to adults taking the time and just listening to them, you know? So they had a lot to say once you could build that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people would end up sharing about things and, you know, the ends, sometimes people would get teary, you would hug and they'd say, I've never, I have, you know, one person told me about her kid's dad who, um, he ended up in prison and died in prison. Hmm. Um, and she told me she hadn't even talked about that, what, what happened in like 20 years. Um, and yeah, so people, people hunger, uh, realness, you know, really, and they hunger a space to talk about these issues um, that they often only hear about in the news, or they only hear about in ways that are about like arguing and debate. Yeah. Something else I wanted to talk with you about is kind of, it's intrinsic, I think, to deep canvassing and what you're saying, but it's more about racial justice work and your approach and your organizing lens you know, and I want to bring it to the podcast, but this is stuff like you and I have discussed and um, you've sent me information about, but this idea of like white people not othering other Mm. white people, if you could talk about what that means and, you know, kind of like your perspective on that, I think that's really important for people to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, for those of us who are white, there's there's this process that happens when we start to realize the horror and the fullness and the depth that is white supremacy and how we're complicit in it. And oftentimes it's like a internalized shame about being white. And we respond to it by telling ourselves that uh, it usually goes something like this subconsciously, like white people are bad um, because now I understand all that white supremacy is and I am white So therefore, I'm bad unless I distance myself from whiteness and white people. Um, Maybe I should say unless I distance myself from from white people. Um, And so this can play out in a lot of ways, especially I think more commonly among uh, liberal white people, where we like to talk about uh, other white people as racist, but not as ourselves. Uh, We like to scapegoat poor and working class white people or Southern or Midwestern white people, right, as like the really bad racists. Um, and all this in a way uh, where we imagine ourselves to be the non-racist. I think some of this frame has been challenged over the last year as part of the the power of the Black Lives Matter movement has pushed white people to understand our complicity in these systems in a, in a scale, I think, that hasn't happened before. Um, so I think part, yeah, part of deep canvassing is like to sit there and talk with somebody who's saying deeply painful things is really hard. And I think um, part of it is understanding that as white people, we are each other in a lot of ways, right? Um, And 
there's a way that, you know, the fact that I can talk to someone who is a more like conservative white person and I can see parts of my grandfather in him, or I can talk to somebody who's, you know, more like a liberal white racist, which is, you know, most of LA white people context. Um, I can imagine like a cousin or an auntie in them. Um, it does set me up to have a level of empathy with them um, that I think just makes it like very fit to be white people's work to, to do this. Um, and there's a piece if I can reach even deeper to remind myself of the racism that lives within me, um, things that I've done and said in the past and that I continue to do that really can kind of help me move to this more. It's almost like a way of seeing it as like a spiritual practice of like we are each other. And to to not, I guess, to not end the process of um, making sense of what I can do as a white person to help fight for racial justice, to not end it with a conclusion that um, at its core is just saying, well, white people are bad, so there's nothing to do about it. So let me distance myself. But actually imagining like we've done horrible, horrible stuff. I'm not sure if I can cuss on your show, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not doing it. But um We've done horrible stuff and we, we can, uh, we can do better. Um, and I think honestly that it's like abolition praxis. Part of it is teaching us this concept that we all can change. Um, but we only do that through community. We don't do that through the individual white person who's woke, who knows how to be down with people of color, um, who knows how to separate themselves from other white people. Um, but, but we, we do that in community and through organizing. Something else you, you know, shared with me too, is like this deep canvassing might be something that's, you know, more effective with strangers than like maybe like within your workplace or, you know, something like that. So if, you know, maybe you could speak to that too. Yeah. I think, you know, oftentimes people will say, oh, can you, you know, can you teach me how to deep canvas so I can use it with my family? Um, I'm not saying it's not possible. I just know kind of similar to if you think about doing like therapeutic work, it's like you often don't do that work with people you know personally because there's just like a different kind of relationship and you're more likely to get activated by knowing things about the person's past or whatever those things are. So oftentimes, you know, in deep canvassing, a lot of uh, folks who've done this organizing for years and years would say like, yeah, it may not be the strategy you use with with people you know. Um, there might be pieces of it, like being able to ask questions, to really hear somebody, um, to get to an emotional place and empathize with them before you start to give a counter uh, perspective. That th Those things are probably helpful tools for any relationship. Um, but your approach might be different. And for me, it's like I often think about, I mean, I guess it depends on the specific person and what they're doing and my relationship with them. But sometimes with, you know, people in my family or network, sometimes there's a role to just interrupt their racism or to let them know, like, this is what you're doing. Um, so, yeah, it definitely shouldn't be taken as like deep canvassing is the the way to have these conversations with all people um, in your life, because um, it may not it may not work as well in that context. Yeah. And I think that's what I think some of what you and I, you know, talked about before is there are situations where racist practices, you know, institutional practices need to be exposed and mm -hmm. made public and broken down and pushed back against because the conversations are getting nowhere. Right. I yeah. mean, there's the, the deep canvassing part to me, I guess that feels different is you're there for 20 minutes and then you move on. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're trying to do organizing, let's say like within your workplace, you know, like to try to change things and it's like you're getting the retaliation and the backlash and, and you're, and you're seeing nothing changing. I, I don't, you know, that's where um, I think it can be like really hard and really, you know, frustrating. And we've seen that, like it's come out a lot, like more, mm -hmm. it seems like there's a new story coming out every day of someone who, especially women of, especially black women who have like left jobs or been fired or, you know, been just totally discredited. Um, but not, you know, but other folks too, white folks too, who are just like this, I was doing racial justice work and <laughs> no, it, it wasn't working. Like, it, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think it's definitely different, different strategies for different contexts. If you're like doing work in inside of an institution, um, 
there's a, a different kind of politic and strategy that goes into it. And there's also a place of um, when it comes to changing institutions, say if you're from the outside, there's a whole, you know, long, long history to organizing strategy that you actually want to polarize people, which is like what we see in the context of talking about defunding the police um, versus going along and being complicit with uh, status quo policing, right? It's like, there's huge change that can happen when you polarize an issue in mass and try to shift like a entire institution. Um, so trying to empathize and, you know, have these conversations in that particular um, like broader level context, I don't think would be a good match for it. Um, and sometimes individual people who are in positions of institutional power, they just need to be called out, you know? Um, and so th that's an important point because it's not, I think sometimes it can, deep canvassing runs the risk of being misinterpreted that it kind of falls into this, like, let's be gentle and kind and nice and listen to each other and that will solve everything. Like, no, that's, <laughs> this is a specific organizing strategy for a specific context only. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that. And I mean, and it's okay if obviously you think otherwise and, you know, that would be something I need to reflect more on. But I, I think it's important because, you know, we can also learn about something and think like, oh, this is like, this is it. This is now it for mm -hmm. everything. And it just doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, it's refreshing to hear you, someone who's used it, who's seen it work, who does research on it, who's so invested in it, but also recognizes like it's, it's got a specific purpose, you know, or maybe mm -hmm. it'll evolve and it'll be able to be used in different ways in different contexts too, with some of the work you're doing and the research you're doing and where this, where it ends up going. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I'd say about deep canvassing, which doesn't get talked about as much, is it um, it creates a great space to develop leaders. Right. So like we organized hundreds of people who were going out having deep conversations about abolition. And a lot of these folks were not abolitionists when they started. But through practicing like this vulnerable conversation over and over again, most of the canvassers moved quite a bit. And so then when the uprisings happened this summer, we had hundreds of folks who were really well steeped in how to talk about abolition in, you know, their daily lives and their networks um, and who are ready to be activated for the next issue. So a lot of people went from Measure R deep canvassing, COVID shutdown happened. They started organizing with the teachers union. They started organizing to get Jackie Lacey out of office as the district attorney, which Black Lives Matter has been pushing on for years. And we won that as well. People started working on Measure J. People started organizing to turn out um, low propensity working class white voters in Georgia through phone banks. You know, like people had just like boom, we're ready. And so um, when we think about preparing large numbers of people with high, high skill to mobilize so that when we have mass movement moments, we're just like ready and prepared, um, deep canvassing does a lot in that regard too. So that's a perfect segue to, you know, so someone listening, you know, that's, you know, how can they learn more? How can they get involved? How can they get trained, you know, in deep canvassing? So in terms of how to get involved, I, you know, I saw someone uh, post this on Twitter recently, like, if you want to make change, join an organization. I agree with 100%. Like, again, we don't, uh, we don't win change as individuals, we typically don't win change through our paid work. Um, some of the my like, you know, personal sheroes in deep canvassing were social workers, psychiatrists, mental health professionals who during the day were working in the juvenile justice system, were working in the jail diversion program, were working in the mental health program, who then on the weekends would go out and try to uh, shift policy to actually move towards a world where they would no longer have their jobs, right? If these systems no longer exist. Mm. Um, so joining an organization, I think, is key. That's going to look different wherever you're at, um, and also, you know, your own identity. Um, if you're a white person, showing up for racial justice has chapters in like all over the country. So I'd highly suggest connecting with the local surge group. So the question of how to get involved in deep canvassing, um, that's as we talked about, it's, it's tricky because there's not... Um, there's not... So uh, AOC recently like after the election, she actually like on Twitter was talking about kind of a call for like year round deep canvassing programs around a variety of issues of like how you actually deeply engage people um, outside of just election cycles. So it's kind of a similar thing where it's a call that's put out. Um, I know there's like white people for black lives here is interested in that. That's part of the research I'll be getting with them probably in the beginning of 2022 because of COVID. Um, 
we hope that that'll be the beginning of like a year round deep canvassing program that we do because we always need to be having these conversations and trying to do this deeper transformation, even if it's not related to a specific electoral cycle. But your question of how do people go get trained, um, I don't have an easy answer for that. There's a variety of groups who have been doing deep canvassing, um, but it tends to be like around campaigns that that come and go. Yeah, I hope, you know, and that's part of, I guess, with my research, I hope that over time um, we can build even more evidence for the efficacy of deep canvassing in this context of racial justice, um, in the context of trying to move white people, in the context of trying to increase support for abolitionist policies. I hope that that kind of research can build more resources to do this kind of work. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I, as I think I've talked about, like my specific focus is using it to organize white people. And I think it has potential across the board, right? Communities who are trying to figure out, um, communities who are non-black, who are trying to figure out how do I address anti-blackness in my community? Mm-hmm. Deep canvassing could be a great way uh, to work on that. Um, communities, uh, you know, any community looking to increase support for abolition um, could find deep canvassing to be a really useful approach. Yeah. So before we, you know, wrap up, um, is there anything, Kristen, that you want to add that you want to put out there? I guess I just, yeah, I guess I just want to say, because this is like a social, I feel like we've talked about this broadly, but I'm like, this is like a social work specific, you know, podcast. And so I think, you know, one of the things um, that I notice is time and time again, uh, many people, especially folks of color in social work spaces say, you know, we need white people to address racism. And the conversation kind of starts and ends there. Um, and so, you know, part of this really is trying to give one example um, for what it means to address racism in white communities in a way that isn't just insular to within social work education, which is often like the most concrete level we take it to in social work because it's like we have some, you know, easy level of influence among how we do education. Um, but I think there's this additional piece of what does it mean for us to be social change agents in the broader community. And I appreciated um your interview uh, with the folks from NABSW because they talked about like how they always had these um, roots with like black community activists who weren't social work professionals necessary, right? So like the National Welfare Rights Organization and, you know, just like moms in neighborhoods who were organizing on stuff and activists. And I think um, I actually helped ground me a little bit because sometimes I think I feel a little bit outside of social work like many of us do because my work is so uh, focused in uh, organizing and activist methods um, that aren't, you know, strictly within the profession of social work. And so I'm like, social work needs to, (laughs) and like NABSW has done, has always been connected with these broader grassroots struggles. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And true social justice work is going to be limited by a lot of the current social work approach because Mm. is it really about liberation or is it about social control? And that's something, you know, we've, we like that many um, conversations I've had with guests on the podcast we've gotten into. Right. And so it's like, yeah, you're grounded in the community, um, which is why I was so, why I wanted to talk with you so much. And I, I think, you know, my experience with with social work students um, and practitioners is that people are hungry for this. Like, people mm-hmm. are, like, really looking for, like, how do I best make, create change? Like, most people, I, you know, there's that whole thing of, like, why did you get into social work? And a lot of people will say, well, I want to help people. But there's a lot of people who are like, I want to change things. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I've been affected. My family's been affected, my friend, my community's been affected, and I'm doing this because I want to like change things. I want to make mm-hmm. things better. Um, and you're, you're, the work you're doing in, in this research and in, in this, the time you've taken to share, you know, this approach on here, I mean, that's, that's a step in that, that's a huge step in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I'm very appreciative. It's like we've only been able to do deep canvassing and help push Measure R because of like brilliant, bold black leadership here in Los Angeles. Right. And so that's part of this broader thing of understanding our work as white people as part of a broader multiracial black led movement. Um, 
And so, yeah, to always like remember that. And so, where you know, wherever you are, there are folks doing the work. The work's going to look different. How you might be able to plug in might be different. Um, and I guess, you know, for those of us who are white to... There, there is a piece of like doing what's asked of you. And sometimes there's a place to start to imagine our responsibility to move white communities and get concrete about what we could do to shift that. It's not folks of color's work to change white people. Um, and it's ours. And I think we actually need to um, provide more leadership in imagining what that can be like with accountability, with mutual interest, right? All these things. Um, but sometimes I think we... We, whether we're aware of it or not, we get worried that we're going to make a mistake. Um, and so we don't fully let ourselves imagine and try things out. Mm. Wow. You know, I know we said that we'd be wrapping up, but you just saying all that really got me thinking. So you had shared that in the beginning, you approached racial justice work from an ally model, and then that evolved for you. So could you talk about that evolution? Mm. Yeah. So, um, like I said, when I first started to work on racial justice issues, um, I think like most white people, honestly, I was taught that my role was to be an ally, that I just needed to like do what people of color asked of me and show up for whatever, you know, whatever the struggle or the issue was, the thing I needed to do. Um, but it kind of got set up in this way as though like my own life was somehow separate from struggles for racial justice. Um, so over time, I've really, I don't know, just like thought a lot about my own experiences in my family growing up and come to understand how whiteness damages white people too. Um, so, you know, like many white families struggle with addiction, mental health, domestic and sexual abuse, homophobia, transphobia, all these things that really are, you know, in some way, they're part of this complex of being the colonizer. Um, and we're trained not to talk about it and to pretend that everything is fine. Um, but we know we also have like all these white men who are mass shooters and violent white supremacists and abusers all the time. Um, so there's this like kind of this contradiction of white people. We have so much privilege and we also have a lot of pain and isolation and like distortion of reality. That's pretty damaging, you know? So it's, um, it's just this like real way of remembering how, uh, unhealthy white supremacy is. It's like, you know, some people talk about it as a sickness. And I think this kind of gets at that sort of concept. Um, so it's like, it's this thing of like, white supremacy doesn't target white people, it targets communities of color, um, but it's not good for us either. Um, but we tend to like white people were trained to um, kind of like hold on to this bribe of whiteness in hopes that it will make us feel better. But the lie just like, it continues to just make things worse for everybody, especially folks of color. Um, so when I, you know, on a very like personal level, as I've like come to understand more about my ancestors, um, some of whom are from Lithuania, like more recent immigrants um, who were, you know, back in the day, they were like pagans. They were like the last um, withholders to Christian colonization in Europe. Um, and then some of my other ancestors who, you know, all I know about them is they were like poor white folks in Georgia for a long time who've been in the U.S. for, you know, a long time. So I don't really know what their European origin stories are. Um, but I, you know, I, when I think about my ancestors, at least like in concept, what I know about them, I can think about how they, in order to become white, they had to like strip themselves of their languages, their cultures, their deeper understanding of who they are um, to become white. And then here in the U.S., like our identities as white people it really starts to get defined only by this very like shallow concept of not being black. Um, and critical race scholars talk about this a lot, right? It's like this intersubjectivity, like whiteness and blackness become inner, like intertwined. But on this very real like level, like I feel like I can point to moments in my childhood with my parents and my grandparents, like moments where they were like in a lot of pain and didn't have much. And I come from more of like a working class um, background, but they got this kind of like, psychological um like wage in this idea that at least they weren't black um and so i think there's this way that uh like white white people we we come to like have an identity through inflicting violence on black and brown communities um so sometimes that can be through like individual behaviors like being karen calling the cops on a black family barbecuing um or through like broader institutions right like buying into this false idea that the cops actually keep people safer. 
Um, so we like buy into this delusion in hopes that we'll feel better, but it, it doesn't. Um, and so understanding this, you know, this piece that like the whiteness that fueled abuse and homophobia in my own family is part of my personal stake in ending white supremacy. Um, that's like what brings me in the work and this concept that Serge talks a lot about of mutual interest, you know, that it's not, we, um, we don't come to the work to end white supremacy out of a sense of doing something for people of color. It's something that like really is going to make a world where we all can thrive. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it, it feels like a hard thing to, um, to talk about as a white person. Like I'm very, as I talk about it, I'm like very conscious of like, Oh, it could be seen as like centering whiteness. Um, and I was talking about this with a friend the other day. It's in some ways, it's kind of like this way. I think we, a lot of us can think about um, vets going to fight like U.S. imperialist wars, right? Where it's like people going to fight wars, killing, you know, mostly innocent people. Um, you know, they're not the ones being killed by U.S. imperialism, but they're harmed by it like so much, you know, mm. like how much like struggle, abuse, addiction, mental health issues like vets often have. It's like clear that the system doesn't actually benefit them, um, but they're not being like killed by, by it in the same way that folks in other countries are with, with U.S. military intervention. So I actually think I think it's something we need to like talk more about, um, about whiteness and um, how it damages white people too, not in the same way as the way the system targets people of color, but really to, so we can come at the work from a place of like full longing and desire to end white supremacy, um, not just doing things that are asked of us by other people where we may be like not as consistent in the way we show up or the leadership we bring to the work. Yeah. Yeah. That's so powerful, Kristen. I mean, you just said so much right there and it gets me thinking about a lot, you know, Paulo Ferreri. I mean, he wrote about kind of that, right. About oppressors being harmed, you know, cause to dehumanize another, you have to dehumanize yourself Yeah. in the process. Do you think your commitment to the work has changed as your understanding of how you've been harmed by whiteness and white supremacy has changed as well? Like what you were just talking about? Do you think that's changed your commitment to the work? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, I, th I think it has. Cause I think in the beginning, like a lot of my work, you know, whether or not it was, I was like fully aware of it or not, like I was looking for permission or validation from people of color as kind of like a sign that I was like doing something that was important. And now, you know, account accountability is incredibly important in the ways we organize, you know, having authentic relationships with people of color in the work who can give us critical feedback and can kind of check us when, <laughs> when our whiteness gets in the way. Um, and there's this piece that I don't know, like rooting myself more fully and like what's at stake for me. Um, it's like, I feel it in my body in a different way. The urgency, the, the need to like say something and act, even if I don't know what I should do or what I should say. Um, the, even the like, you know, it's kind of bold to like propose organizing white people on a campaign that's led by, you know, someone like Patrice Conkullers. Um, you know, it's like not, it's a easy thing to like, imagine we should have no place in the work to do. And so even just that thing of being like, I have a lot at stake in ending white supremacy, um, in a different way, but a mutual way to somebody like Patrice Conkullers, it's like, I can show up with my full self with a vision um, an idea for how we actually end racism in white communities. Um, if I'm just coming at it from an ally framework, I don't think I would like, I don't think I would come to that place, honestly, hmm. like limiting in a certain way. I think it's really important to talk about, and I agree it's hard to talk about it. There's a vulnerability and there's like this unknown aspect to the conversation mm -hmm. and having that conversation is important. I think you're right. Like it, it deepens the work and, you know, maybe that's, but, th but then you're right. It's also like that fine line because it could easily get co-opted. And again, mm. white people get centered and white fragility gets centered, which it's so hard to always to get away from that. Right. It's so easy to go back into that. Yeah. Yeah. And that it makes me think a little bit. There's um this person, Ruby Sales. She's a um, longtime civil rights activist. And I think she calls herself a public theologian, like amazing title, public theologian. 
Um, but she talks about, we were talking about this a little bit um, earlier, how, you know, the right knows how to speak to the pain of white people, but they use, they use that to be able to like, teach white people to scapegoat folks of color um, for their pain. And I do think there's also this strategic element of like, the left, especially white people, we, we need to learn how to talk to white people about their pain, because it's real. It is that like vulnerable, real place that exists within us. Um, but to teach people how to connect that to uh, how we have so much to win, if we can actually work to dismantle white supremacy and racial capitalism, you know, that it's um, that exactly what you're saying, the connection to how whiteness and white supremacy damages white people as well. Yeah. Kristen, I appreciate everything you've shared and you taking the time to come on here and, you know, for doing the work in the community. Yeah, thank you. It's been, um, you know, it's been, I was asked by somebody today, what's the thing you're proudest of in your life? And I joked, I was like, most people say they're kids, but I'm like, I said, it's the organizing I've been involved in over the last 20 years, you know, to be part of intergenerational multiracial movements with a broad vision for collective liberation and actually seeing like big shifts even in the 20 years I've been involved. Um, it's like, it's honestly kind of the best way to be human. Um, yeah. That's awesome. I love how you just put that. Yeah. I've never thought of that before. It just came out my mouth. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. 